Now, my next guest has had the type of career you expect to see only in the movies. She spent over 25 years as a CIA intelligence officer and for many years lived undercover and served tours of duty in Europe, the Far East, uh, as well as CIA headquarters. By the time she retired in 1993, Jonna Mendez had risen within the top secret organisation to the position of Chief of Disguise. Jonna's first book, Spy Dust, written with her late husband, is recommended reading for new recruits in the US intelligence community and details her work against the Soviets in Moscow during the last decade of the Cold War. Her third book, The Moscow Rules, is due out in May of this year and I'm delighted to say that she joins us this evening to talk about her incredible career. Uh, Jonna, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, to start with, will you give people a little bit of background? You were born in Kentucky, raised in Wichita, Kansas, and when you graduated college, uh, went to live in Germany. But it was in your early 20s when you were recruited into CIA. How did that happen? You know, it's an interesting question because uh, at CIA, whenever we would, uh, especially early in our careers, we'd always ask each other, how did, how did you get in here? It's, a, it's an interesting place to wander into, which is more or less what I did. Uh, I was working at Chase Manhattan Bank in Frankfurt, a big center of, of banking in Europe. And um, there was this group of Americans who were coming in biweekly. I guess they were depositing their checks. They were kind of fun. I was lonely for English-speaking friends. And so I met up with this group and started um, um, going around with them. I ended up dating one of them. I ended up marrying one of them in Switzerland uh, about a year and a half later. And then he, um, he told me where he worked. I had no idea what the CIA was. I really didn't know. Um, I found out. And then we, we, we went, he was reassigned to the Far East, and I went, of course, with him. Now we're married, and I needed a job. So I got a job uh, in the field working as a secretary so many years ago. That was the beginning of my working with the agency. I mean, it's it's quite phenomenal. When one thinks of the CIA, one thinks of spies and, and espionage and, and the type of thing that the 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 common old garden person on the street um, would only see in movies. Uh, what was the process? Can you talk a bit at all about the process of recruitment? Because it just seems, um, it seems like it would be extremely cloak and dagger that a lot of uh, background checks would be carried out. Was that, was that how it was? Um, for me, it was, it was an odd way to get, come into the CIA. I, I always said I came in a side door. Uh, but throughout my career, I was involved with uh, some of the recruitment um, uh, and the process of recruitment. It was a, it was an interesting process. The part of the CIA that I worked for was um, the technical arm. You could compare it. Uh, we compared it to Q in the James Bond movies. Mm. It was that piece that piece of the business. Um, when we were recruiting for the CIA, we were looking for people who could do the work um, in our technical office. So we were looking for engineers. We were looking for chemists and physicists. We were looking for forensics people. My husband, Tony Mendez, was hired into that same group um, as an artist, uh, but not to make fine art. He was hired in to make um uh, exact duplicates of documents. His hand-eye coordination as a um, as an artist gave him a unique ability to copy things. 
we we had um, a large group of people who were linguists, some of them speaking three and four and five languages in order to to um, to help with our work. It was an interesting group of people. And we would actually, um, here in the States, we would go out to university campuses when they would have career day. We would be there. The problem with our recruiting was a lot of people came to see just what did we look like. Mm. Mm. <laughs> you know, they wanted they they wanted to to see the recruiters. Um, a broader answer to your question um, that brings it maybe a little closer to the present day uh, in recruiting for CIA. Uh, the kind of people that they are looking for is is rather specific in a way they're looking for people not fresh out of school but people who have graduated and who have sort of proven themselves to be the the, the, the right type of person people who have traveled people who are curious people who do speak some languages maybe people who have worked overseas and have a a a an ability to adapt to different, to different cultures and different um, um, climates. We're looking for people who think on their feet, people who can solve problems. Now, if we're, if we're talking about the operations element of CIA, we're looking for even more. We're looking for people who are somewhat charismatic, for people who can influence other people, who can befriend other people, who people who can... Uh, convince someone that they would like to work for us or with us. It's, uh, that's, that's a little harder fit. Not everybody falls into that genre. And some of those skills, we, we talk about this at some length in this new book we're writing. Some of those skills we can teach you. We can give you the ability. We can teach you the language. But we cannot teach this personality type that we're looking for we have to find them or they have to find us do you have to be a good liar um you don't always have to be able to dissemble that's not the part of every job but if you're a case officer you have to be able to do more than lie you have to be able to lie when it's necessary you have to be able to act you have to be able to become someone else on occasion you have to be able to convince people uh, of the, the, the uh, not not of your lie sometimes, but of your truth. Mm. Um, there's there's a lot going on there, and it's uh, it's our job from the inside to screen for those people to find those people. Donna, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that people have? And I think you touched on a few of them there, but the biggest misconceptions that people have about working for CIA. Well, I think a lot of people, first of all, their misconceptions are pretty much based on um, um, Hollywood mm. and um, the literature that is written, a lot of it, which is very, very um, off base. A lot of, if you take the Matt Damon movies, mm. I have a 26-year-old son who loves the Matt Damon movies, but of course they're, they're completely wrong. This idea of the deranged assassin who has a safety deposit box full of 10 different passports with 10 different names and maybe a couple of million dollars. You know, this is, this is not it. Um, 
in intelligence operations, there's an enormous amount of planning. There's an enormous amount of time spent in meetings trying to figure out a solution. And then to implement a solution, say in one of our worst case scenarios, say in Moscow, takes months of planning for one meeting. Because in Moscow, lives are on the line. If, if, some, if you trip up, if you somehow reveal your agent, if you're followed to a meeting, if you somehow in your communications, if you uh, divulge his identity, they'll kill him, they'll shoot him, they'll execute him in a heartbeat, mm. and they'll throw you out of the country. You're typically not, not in danger, but the people working for you are. Um, and so it becomes a little bit life and death, and it keeps my husband, Tony, he would always say it's in the details. You just have to make sure you've got all the details right. That's where the planning comes in. So the idea of a couple of guys sitting in a bar and planning an operation and going out and executing it is, is dead wrong. The truth is that, you know, you probably spend a hundred hours working on a situation and maybe you spend an hour immersed in the operation with your heart beating so hard you think you're going <laughs> to pass out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the work is exciting, but there's a lot of there's a lot of steps before you get to those moments on the street. You went on to become technical operations officer with a speciality in uh, clandestine photography. Can you tell us exactly what that entailed? Well, I can. Um, clandestine photography is is the, 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 the manner of collecting the intelligence that our policy makers need to make informed decisions. Mm. Doing it by photographing uh, documents. There, there are a lot of ways you can, you can sit down with an agent and he can talk to you and tell you what's going on. We can send a satellite overhead to photograph what's happening on the ground. But the beauty of using the camera, it's that old thing about a picture is worth a thousand words. Mm. The cameras are able to photograph not what's going on on the ground, not what's happening today, but what's going to happen, the minutes of the meeting, the agenda of the meeting, what are they thinking, what are they going to do, what are they planning? You bring me a photograph of those documents, I will put them on the president's desk, and our country will know what it is they're dealing with. Uh, so the, the, the difficulty was in taking the picture, wasn't it? Because uh, those documents are, are highly prized and carefully guarded and usually top secret. We provided to our assets these unique cameras that were so small uh, that we could conceal them in a number of things. We could conceal them in, a, in an ink fountain pen. The fountain pen would still write the cameras inside the pen you could take pictures with the pen. If your boss walked in, you could just make a note. Um, when your boss walked out, you could click it and you could take a picture. We put those cameras in everything from key fobs, um, one with an lipstick, um, a big lighter. The lighter would light a cigar. The lipstick would put on a brilliant red before mm -hmm. you dropped it in your purse. So these cameras, these small cameras, in these small, what we call concealments, were lethal to the enemy because you would never know they were there. And because they 
were capable of collecting, and they did collect more valuable intelligence than any other tool that we had while I was working. If you are just joining us, Jonna Mendez uh, joins us on the line from the United States. Uh, she is a retired CIA agent who spent more than 25 years in the business uh, and a considerable portion of that time working as head of disguise. And it's that that I want to talk to you about now, Jonna, which is just absolutely fascinating. And I, I was watching an interview with you earlier today in which you described uh, the process of disguise as very much like an onion, um, layers, layering, layering um, elements of disguise. Can you just explain, I mean, Chief of Disguise, this is what everyone wants to know about, the identity transformation, uh, this idea of turning somebody uh, from one person to, to another. Can you give some examples of, of some of the some of the situations where you've where you've done that and and just what goes into uh, the intricacies of what goes into making, um, you know, John Doe, somebody else completely different? Um, yes, I can talk about that, and I, I would uh, I would insert here that the reason I can talk about it is because um, uh, the CIA has allowed me. We're, we've written a new book. That book has just gone through the the review process at CIA. So I know that I know where the guardrails are when I'm talking about these subjects. I don't want people to think I'm betraying my country here. The book is called The Moscow the Rules, right? Was, yeah, the book is called The Moscow Rules, and yeah. Disguise was was a, a big piece of business when we were working in Moscow. Um, I would set the scene, because in Moscow, we had surveillance. Our officers, and many, many of our officers at the American Embassy, we would have surveillance um, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. If you went outside of the embassy compound, more than likely, you had a surveillance team with you. And, of course, we had a lot of things we needed to do, and we, we couldn't do them under surveillance. And so that's where disguise would come in, to, to try and configure our officers in a way that surveillance would leave them alone. Um, there are different levels of disguise. The, the, the simplest and the most common, the most useful, um, is what we call light disguise. And that was nothing more than one of our officers would come into a disguise lab and we would we would have a form and we would just make a series of notes. What kind of hair, short or long? Was it curly or straight? Was it blonde or black? What, what are the color of the eyes? Is there facial hair in evidence? Does he wear glasses? How tall is he? Does he have any distinguishing characteristics? Does he have any tattoos? Does he have any anything that is notable? Is there a mole? Are his teeth noticeable? Uh, all of that. You make a note of, of the true face and the true presentation of your subject, and then you set about changing it piece by piece. That's kind of where the layers of the onion come in. The goal is, the long-term goal is, if, if this officer goes out and has a meeting with a, with a, a foreign person, and that, that foreigner perhaps goes back and makes a memorandum for the record of the meeting and describes our officer, we want every possible fact in that memorandum to be incorrect. So uh, the memorandum might say, I met with uh, I met with an American man this afternoon. I think he was around 25. We would hope to have aged him. He had dark hair with slightly graying. That would be part of the disguise. He was wearing glasses. That would be part of the disguise. He had brown eyes. That could be part of the disguise because colored contacts can can do that. Uh, he had a mole on his on his right cheek that could be part of the disguise, or he had a scar 
He had a scar by his ear. That could be part of the disguise. Uh, he had a mustache or not. He had a beard or not. Um, he was married because he's wearing a ring or not. He might have on too much uh, uh, cologne or not. He might be wearing gold chains. All of these things start putting a character together in the, in the eye of the observer. We're building that character on purpose. And so the man, at the end of the, at the, end of the memorandum, the man that's been described is, um, is amorphous. You cannot find that man in, 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 in the situation that he met the writer of the memo, because that man doesn't exist. That's light disguise. It's, uh, it's stuff that you can, uh, it's material that's available everywhere. Mm-hmm. Anybody can go into a, a wig shop. Anybody can, can make a fake mole. Anybody can, you know, change your glasses and get contact lenses. You put it all together and you build a new person. And we used to do that just to confuse the enemy, if you think of Moscow again, mm-hmm. just so they wouldn't know which person from the American embassy that they had met. But things changed over the years, and we started working against two other targets around the world. Uh, one was terrorists. The other one was um, narcotics, because outside of the United States, those are two targets that the CIA works again against. And, um, and then the rules of the game changed, because when we were just working against mm, Russians in Russia, they weren't really going to shoot us. They weren't carrying guns. They weren't going to kill us. But if we were working against terrorists in the Far East, they just might take a shot at us. Mm. And if we're working against narcotics in Latin America, it is um, dangerous. So our, our disguises morphed in those two situations and were considered more a kind of body armor. Mm. protection not just to not just to confuse them but to protect our officers maybe from physical harm how quickly is somebody able to change their look if they're on the move and being followed i mean is that uh is that a a regular is that a quite a common situation that somebody might have to uh in the heat of the moment choose ditch one disguise for another or um change their appearance and i guess not only their appearance but their entire attitude and character uh in in a split second or in a matter of moments um my husband came up with Tony. Tony did a lot of groundbreaking work yeah. in um, in the disguise uh, department at CIA. He he came up with some uh, techniques that were uncommon, and um, they were incorporated into our our um, our toolbox of things that we could use. This would be called disguise on the run, and it's not something that you needed to do everywhere, but it's something that was very useful in some circumstances. Again, if you had surveillance, if you were worried about surveillance and trying to get away from them. And the idea is that in a crowded um, urban environment, think New York City, but that applies around the world. It could be Tokyo. It could be anywhere. In a crowded urban environment, walking down the street, you can do a series of changes, and nobody is going to see all of your changes, and nobody is actually going to even notice that you're doing them surveillance discrete surveillance will be far enough back they won't be right on top of you and they can lose you in the middle of a crowd um 
just based on what you said earlier, I might know which video you saw recently if I was talking about transparent layers. Mm. Uh, and in, in that video, I, uh, I was demonstrating with my son, my grown son in New York, how that, how that works. Mm. And so he had walked out of a building wearing a coat and tie. He just looked like a young businessman. And he had, um, he had a, he was carrying some small black bag and walking down the street, walking at a camera at a distance through a crowd, he turned into this young hipster wearing sort of a beanie and Ray-Bans and earbuds had his Walkman, had on a, a tank top, had a full sleeve of tattoos, and was carrying a backpack. He did all of that from a business kind of guy to that hipster in about 30 seconds because it was 30 steps. And, and when I taught him how to do it, I taught him the same way I teach a CIA officer. You're going to have this, this space to do your work in. Um, I'm thinking of one that was 47 steps it was very very important and you count off the steps and you make your changes just going down the street and um it's brilliant it works just fine what is that we we hear in movies about oh that the agent has been made can you just explain what that what that means if an agent has been made he's been identified right uh, it could be a, a variety of ways but if if he has been made it means he is he is in a way a marked man uh, and and if you have been made, depending on who made you and what you're doing <laughs> and who they are, mm-hmm. you can be either in, embarrassed or you could be in danger, and and everything in between. Can you talk about some and of the? You have to figure out what to yeah, do about it. Yeah. Can you talk about some of the the experiences that perhaps that you were at or your agents have been in where where you have been made, um, and and how one deals with it. And and I guess there must be enormous training that that goes on. I remember watching a movie, and I think it was a Will Smith Gene Hackman movie, and the name of it completely escapes me. But I remember Will Smith being interviewed about, and you spoke about the technology and and cameras in lipsticks and pens. And I remember him saying that he um, had had some uh, dealing with uh, with a CIA agent just to give, give authenticity to the film and and he was saying to the CIA agent well listen you're giving away all your secrets and the and the agent said to him listen the stuff that we're telling you is stuff that we were doing 30 years ago we are way ahead of you now uh, I would I would echo all of that that's probably why the CIA doesn't land on me if yeah. I, when I want to do an interview when I when I want to speak out but there's more to it than that these kinds of techniques are imperceptible. And even though your opposition might know that you're doing it, there's not a lot they can do about it. Mm. Short of tugging on your beard to see if it comes off. It's like, it's like a kid with Santa Claus. I mean, mm-hmm. you, everyone has to be suspect. And then you get paranoid. And then you think everyone's wearing beards and, and mustaches and wigs. Um, the fact that we're what we're doing doesn't draw any attention. You look, you look just like everyone else on the street. If you if you wanted an example of um, a situation, what what we what we would always say before we tell these stories is that training is everything. We were in training for most of our careers. Mm. We trained and we trained and we trained. So when you get out in the world and you're in a situation. You almost, I mean, I don't want to say you don't have to think, but you reflexively, you know what to do. You know what you have to do. So one example would be early in my career. I was in Latin America, 
I was down there doing some disguise work. It was a very dangerous place. It was so dangerous that I was I was um, I was picked up every morning at my hotel by an armored car with two cars with people with guns in them to to, to drive me to our embassy. Um, this was a place where it was it was uh, a tough tough place. In that place, one evening, I was walking back to my hotel. I was walking down the street. I was alone. Uh, there, I could see a, a small, a small, not an alley, bigger than an alley, but a small street cutting between the block I was on, and I wanted to be on the next block. So I took that small street, and I was walking down it, walking down it. I, I look ahead. And there's a cluster of men standing in the middle of the road. They're talking to each other. And I'm walking straight at them. My fear when I was in that city was not that somebody would think I was CIA and, you know, try and do some harm to me. My, my fear was that they would think I was Drug Enforcement Agency, DEA, and shoot me because drugs were everywhere. They were everywhere. And I was walking, I'm pretty sure, straight at a drug deal. So what do you do? I couldn't. If I turned around and went the other way, they'd probably, I thought, come after me. If I slowed down and hesitated, I thought I would draw their attention. And so what I did is I took kind of a deep breath, and I walked right through them and walked away from them on the other side, wondering, because I couldn't turn around and look. That's one of the Moscow rules. You can't turn around and look. Wondering uh, what they were doing and what they were thinking and were they coming after me, and they did not and I'm fine. But that was just one of those I knew, I knew from all my training what to do, and that was not to hesitate and just to walk through them. I had to. How is that it? That was one scary moment. I mean, that that just, that completely blows my mind. And, and you mentioned your son, and I, I saw your son in the video. How is it possible that you were able to live a, a, a quote-unquote normal life as a, as a wife and mother while working for CIA? That, to me, is extraordinary. Well, I would tell you, the, uh, the fact is that I was not a mother. I had that, I had that. A lovely young man that you saw in the uh, in the video clip. I had him very late in my life, and I retired from the CIA shortly after I had him. Mm. I, I, I kind of did things uh, um, almost backwards, but actually, I don't think that's true. So I, I wasn't. Uh, I didn't have a child at home. I was traveling all the time. I have a lot of young women that asked me about that. How does that work? And every woman has to find her own solution. Not every CIA job is a traveling job. Not every CIA job is an overseas job. Um, so women have to find their way. But I did not have to do that juggling part of it. I was, uh, I was married, but my husband and I were both traveling all the time. We used to keep a book on a table inside of our door and I would come home from a trip, and he would be gone. And I would make a note, I'm back, um, put a date on it. You know, I'm leaving, put the date on it. And maybe he'd, be, maybe he'd you know, come home the next day, and, and we'd have a couple of days together. But very often, I'd leave, and he'd come back, and he'd make a note in the book. Hmm. That's kind of what that turned into. 
the, what is extraordinary about your story is that you are and you are able to speak so so openly about your time with the agency. How is it that that is that that has been allowed? How have you come to that agreement? Because there is so much I'm sure that you are not able to tell us. But at the same time, for for those of us who know very little about CIA and about uh, spies and espionage, it is you are giving us such a a breadth of of information and so much fodder to feast on. So how is it possible? that CIA have allowed you to speak so openly? And do they monitor you? Well, that's a, that's a good question, and, and it's not often asked. This began uh, maybe nine years after Tony Mendez, my husband, mm. retired. He retired right before we got married. He retired partly because we were getting married. We worked too close together at CIA, and when we got married, it was going to be inappropriate. He was in my chain of command. So my husband, bless his heart, said, you know, I think I'll leave and just do painting full time. He was always an artist. Mm. Anyway, after he left, he was declared one of the CIA trailblazers. Those who made a huge difference in the CIA, who left a footprint, who impacted the way things are done. It was quite an honor. As part of that, he was asked to speak to the press. The CIA said, we want you to talk to the New York Times. My husband said, no. The story you want me to tell was the Argo story. He said, it's classified. They said, uh, and George Tennant said, Tony, talk to them. So after that publicity died down, Tony decided to write a book about some of the stories that can be told. Um, True stories that and he thought if, if the CIA allowed it and if the public knew the stories, it might affect the public image of the CIA. So he wrote a book called The Master of Disguise. Mm-hmm. And it did impact um, the way people who read it thought about the agency. And then Tony and I both started speaking and writing It was not at the CIA's direction, but it was with their um, implicit permission. And initially, they did monitor us. They would send people from our public affairs office to sit in on interviews. Um, Those people, I think they got bored when it became clear that we weren't going to give away the store. And we've been talking and um, writing ever since then. When the movie Argo came out, It just, the whole thing just snowballed. And we traveled for almost three years, weekly, sometimes two and three places a week, talking. Um, As far as we can tell, we have done no harm. We have probably done some good for our old employer. We think that we have garnered a little more respect for our colleagues, not only explaining what it is they do, but how they do it, and what kinds of people that they are. The CIA, for many, many years, had been very kind of subtly demonized because the only thing you ever heard about the CIA were the mistakes. And because the CIA's response to any publicity was no comment. And and after a while, that wasn't really working very well. So the fact that They've allowed us to continue to do this. Probably amazes me as much as much as it does you. 
Yeah. And I'm, I'm only too glad to, to speak out. Your latest book, uh, Moscow Rule, is that right? April or May? Yeah. And where can people get hold of it? Will it be? It'll be out May twenty first, as actually. Fantastic, and that will be available uh, for our uh, South African uh, listeners, for the South African readers, um, on Amazon and and other um, platforms similar to that. Absolutely. It's going to be available everywhere. Fantastic. It has been such a pleasure to speak to you. Absolutely fascinating, Jonna, and we thank you so much for your time this evening. Thank you. Love talking to you.